If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The story of the Roman Emperor Heliogabalus is filled with sex and death and decadence. But it also touches on some key questions about Imperial Rome. What were the limits of political power? How far should a ruler intervene in the lives of his subjects? And what was a Roman emperor actually expected to do? Rachel Dinning talks to historian Harry Sidebottom about this scandalous Roman emperor and what we can learn from the era about his brief but dramatic time in power. So I wanted to start by asking you about his name. So for the purpose of this podcast episode, I'm going to use the name Heliogabalus, as you do in your book. But the Roman emperor actually acquired a number of other names during his lifetime, more than any other emperor, as you note. So can you tell our listeners about some of the names associated with this Roman emperor and what they might tell us about him? I call him Heliogabalus in the book because it's the name he's most often known by in the modern world if he's known at all, because he's a largely forgotten emperor. It was never his name. Uh, It was a nickname given to him some 200 years after he was dead. It's a combination of the name of the god he worshipped, Elagabal, and Helios, the sun, and it's deliberately put together to make him sound weird and strange and barbaric. When he came to the throne, he actually had a terribly normal Roman name. He took a throne name of Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, I don't use that because, A, it's exactly the same name as Marcus Aurelius, the famous Stoic philosopher, and it's also actually the name of an emperor we know as Caracalla. Heliogabalus is not his name, but it's the most useful name to use. That makes sense. And I wanted to now go on to talk a bit about his reputation, because boy, does he have an interesting one. So Heliogabalus is depicted by several Roman sources as the most monstrous tyrant ever to ascend the throne. And I'm curious, is this a fair assessment of this boy emperor? 
I think, actually, oddly enough, on the whole, it is. I mean, he comes to the throne. He's put on the throne by his grandmother when he's just 14. And he's almost a test case in an emperor who does everything wrong, who does everything an emperor's not meant to do. Um, he does mundane things like waste vast sums of money, um, promote low-born favourites to power, kill lots of members of the Senate. But the two things that really secure his reputation as the worst of all emperors is religion and his sex life. And I'm happy to talk more, more about both of these in a very non-prurient way. Well, we'll go into, let's go both into those two things a little bit later on. But before we do, um, I was wondering, how does his tyranny stand up to other infamous Roman emperors that people might be more familiar with, like Nero or Caligula? Where would you rank him? Well, there's an t- odd tendency amongst modern historians to rehabilitate all these people and go, oh, no, no, they can't have been that bad because uh, it's merely our upper-class sources from the ancient world who disliked them. And then you try and say, oh, well, the lower classes must have loved them, or it's merely propaganda from the next reign, or some desperate arguments are oh, look, there's lots of nice literature and art produced in the rain, so he can't have been that bad at all. I think this is really foolish because it seems to be us knowing more than the ancient sources. Heliogabalus does a lot of the things that Caligula and Nero do, but he actually does all of them. I mean, they do quite a few bad things. He has the full suit of totally bad things. And Unlike them, he does try and change the whole religion of the Roman Empire, which is massively upsetting and shocking for contemporaries. So on that note, I thought maybe we can dive deeper into the question of religion. Um, so Heliogabalus originated from Syria, actually, where um, in his early youth, he served as high priest of this eastern sun god, Elagabal. So this is a religion he brought into his role as emperor. Um, so what practices did he introduce as emperor, and how were they received? Right. He actually, he, you're absolutely right, he comes from a Syrian family, although, oddly enough, he's not born in Syria. He's almost certainly born in Rome. And weirdly for Brits, he seems to have spent some formative years in what's now York. He grew up in Yorkshire. He goes to the East not long before he's proclaimed emperor, and he seems to have undergone a profound religious conversion to the local sun god, Elagabal. Now, this god is really odd from Roman eyes because the god is manifest on earth as a huge black stone. And when he becomes emperor, he takes the stone with him to Rome. It's drawn in a chariot with four white horses. The emperor himself dresses as, not as a Roman emperor usually, but as a Syrian priest. He leads the god into Rome, um, running backwards, leading the horses, with a Praetorian guardsman on either side holding his elbow, stopping him tripping up. He builds a huge temple on the Palatine. He builds another large temple in the suburbs of Rome. He organises massive processions between the two, uh, Midsummer's Day, and presumably the god goes back at Midwinter's Day. Every morning there are endless ceremonies, very expensive, lavish ceremonies to the god, as a sun god, um, at dawn. And he insists that the Senate, the leading class of Rome, participate in these. And how's it received? Um... Not very well. Very, very badly, as far as we can tell. The thing is that the Romans, it's easy for us to get that they actually did believe in their gods. And the whole safety of Rome, the salus, as they would have called it, safety or health of Rome, depends on the 
pact with the gods, the Pax Deorum. If the Romans do right by the gods, then the gods should do right by Rome. Now, Elagabal introduced into Rome, and the emperor then proclaims this god is now the head of the Roman pantheon. It's hard to imagine anything that could be more upsetting to traditional Roman views. And in a way, it poses for contemporaries an existential threat to the whole Roman Empire. My understanding of um, ancient Rome was that, that, you know, they had many gods and they did fluctuate between who they, who they believed in. So what was different about Elagabal? No, you're absolutely right. The Romans are actually usually pretty good at accepting other gods. Um, what they usually do is say, oh, this god we've come across wherever is really just another manifestation of a god we already know. With Elagabal, that's trickier because the emperor announces or decrees that every magistrate must now take an oath, whenever they take an oath, they must swear by Elagabal before any other god. He's created at the head of the pantheon. And it's that that really upsets the Romans. That and, of course, the Romans do not want their emperor devoting most of his time to what they see as outlandish religious practices. They can be very accepting if someone else is doing it, but not the head of state. So were Heliogabalus's religious beliefs ever... Were they, would they have been seen as extremism, um, a Roman form of religious extremism? I think indeed they would, and an alien extremism. It's, it's the fact that the cult around the sun god Elagabal is self-consciously set up as Eastern, and that's one thing that the Romans really disliked, because it leads into the whole big question of were the Romans racist? And it's a very live scholarly debate. Um, in the book, my book, The Mad Emperor, I come down pretty hard on the side that, yes, they were. I'm not arguing that they hated the Emperor Heliogabalus because he was Syrian or Syrian ancestry. What I'm suggesting is that because he was flamboyantly Syrian and Eastern, it made them easier to hate a man who'd given them lots of other reasons to be hated. Swiveling back a little bit to how he became emperor in the first place, I wanted to talk about his rise to power. So Heliogabalus was only 14 when he became emperor. Can you give us a little overview of how this happened? Yes, he is placed on the throne by his grandmother, a truly terrifying woman called Julia Miser. She starts a military revolt in the spring of AD 218. And the revolt on paper seems to have no chance of succeeding. But in fact, it has two things in its favour. One, the emperor on the throne, a man called Macrinus, is not liked by the army. They're ready to revolt. They're looking for almost anyone to proclaim emperor instead of Macrinus. And the second factor is that the army is widely scattered in winter quarters when the revolt happens. So Julia Miser and Heliogabalus don't have to fight the whole army. They, have to, they can win it over piece by piece. They just need to win one battle, which they do. Heliogabalus himself, as a 14-year-old boy, seems to have done really well in the revolt. I mean, he makes a, we're told he makes a speech to the second lot of troops that come over, that wins them over. In the one battle, he, he behaves well in a flamboyant theatrical way of getting on a horse, unsheathing a sword, and charging as if he was about to fight the enemy. Notice he, he doesn't. But he's done very well. It's, um, 
he, once he's in power that everything goes wrong. Clearly his grandmother, Julia Miser, wanted a nice docile puppet ruler. Unfortunately, what she got was Heliogabalus, this very strange, very self-willed religious fanatic who also has a flamboyant lifestyle that really doesn't fit with conventional Roman morality. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. It's interesting because today we might think of a 14-year-old as a child still. But you write in the book, this is actually a modern notion. And the classical world had no mental category of adolescent. Um, so would expectations of Heliogabalus as an emperor have been the same as someone older than him? Did they make allowances for him being 14? Or was that not a consideration? No, as you rightly say, they had no concept of adolescence. At 14, you took the toga virilis, you went from the status of child to man. Um, I'm not sure they'd have made any allowances for him. They would have been worried by it because they did very much have the concept that young rulers are much more malleable, much more open to suggestion by those around them. But no, he would have been expected to behave as a man and well he does it's just it's the kind of man he behaves as that's the real problem sure and how much power did he actually have you mentioned him being susceptible to others um or even that his age might in some people's eyes make him a bit, bit more of a puppet how much power did he actually wield and how much did other people influence him like his grandmother for example well in theory, the Roman emperor's power is absolute. By the 3rd century AD, in fact, almost from the start of the rule of the emperors, the, the, the will of the emperor is law. He can make law, he can unmake law, he can do what he likes, which, of course, is a very dangerous thing when you put that in the hands of a 14-year-old. It's interesting how 
a lot of scholars now try and see, well, all emperors as being totally run by factions of sensible, rational politicians who are standing behind them. I think it's a kind of weird anachronism because modern scholars just fail to get the, in empathy with autocrats. In, in the Roman Empire, as in any autocracy, status and position doesn't really matter. What matters is being close to the emperor, being able to whisper in his ear. In Heliogabalus's case, I did a checklist in the book of the number of times his grandmother actually gets him to do something and the number of times he ignores her. And I think it's about 50-50. So he's, he is his own ruler, but he is very influenced by her. If you can influence the ruler of the known world about half the time to do what you want, no, you're not running the empire totally, but you are in a position of great power, which, of course, is fascinating because she's a woman and she shouldn't be. In Roman views, you know, women can't be a magistrate. They can't hold any official position. And yet here's this elderly woman who half the time appears to be running the empire. So I wrote down this quote from a historian, Adrian Goldsworthy, whose assessment of Heliogabalus is that he was not necessarily a tyrant, but he was an incompetent, probably the least able emperor Rome ever had. Um, and I was curious, what makes a competent Roman emperor? And how does perhaps Heliogabalus fall short of being competent? That is a very good question. I approach it in the book by a deliberate anachronism of imagining what are the constituencies an emperor has to appeal to and keep on side. And I think they're four. They've got to keep the Senate, the social elite, political elite of Rome on side, because otherwise the senators can kill them. They've got to keep, obviously, the army on side, because once again, if they don't, the army will kill them. They've got to keep the plebs of Rome, the urban population on side. Rome's this huge city of about a million people. They're, of the four, possibly the least important. No uprising by the plebs ever kills an emperor. They can destabilise his reign, they can kill some of his favourites, but they never succeed in getting rid of an emperor. Um, were I emperor, I'd probably ignore them and concentrate on the other three. And the fourth are f rather more obscure. It's what were called the Familia Caesaris, the family of Caesar, and that's the imperial staff in the palace. And they run to thousands of slaves and ex-slaves. Now, the problem any emperor has is that all four of these constituencies want him to do and be a very different sort of emperor. So the soldiers want a guy with a buzz cut and a short stubbly beard who marches with them, sits on the ground and eats their rations with them and is a fellow soldier. The senators want the first amongst equals. They want a man who's dignified in a toga, invites them round for dinner, certainly doesn't have them strip searched or anything like that, keeps up this pretense of stepping down to their level. The plebs of Rome want a man with the democratic touch or at least the demagogic touch of not only giving circus games and gladiatorial shows, but actually being there and entering into the spirit of them. And the familiar Caesaris want a man who's surrounded by a hierarchy of rituals that they set up. Now, Heliogabalus almost willfully seems to upset all four of these constituencies. I mean, it's, it's as if he sets out to annoy everyone. Um, he kills and humiliates lots of senators. He ostentatiously ignores the army after he's got to the throne. And the familiar Caesaris on the Palatine, he ignores their nice ceremonies and rituals and imposes his own of the god. 
The only group he seems to sort of try and conciliate are the plebs, who he gives huge shows for, and it doesn't work because of his religion and maybe because of his sexuality and also, I think, because he persecutes members of his own family. The Roma plebs seem quite almost sentimental about members of the imperial family who are persecuted by an emperor. It turn, if you kill or persecute one of your relatives, it turns the plebs against you. So, in other words, Helicabras, I think, is the most incompetent of all emperors. The Emperor Tiberius called his role, the role of emperor, as being, uh, it's like holding a wolf by the ears. And um, with my four constituencies, you've now got to imagine four wolves. You've got to hold them all by the ears at the same time. And Heliogabalus certainly lets go of three sets of um, wolf's ears, and the fourth wolf doesn't like him anyway. So I wanted to move on and talk about Heliogabalus's sexuality, which is something that if, if you've heard about him before, if you're a listener who's heard about him, that's something you'll probably know about already. So he was thought to transgress every boundary about Roman sexuality. So first, I thought perhaps, could you tell us a bit about Roman sexual norms? Because they're perhaps a bit different to ours today. Like what were the sort of accepted rules around sex, who you could have sex with, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's totally right. They are were very different from ours. For example, the concepts of homosexual, heterosexual had absolutely no meaning in the Roman world. I mean, no Latin or Greek word n neatly translates these concepts. It was traditional mora uh, sexual morality is far less about the gender of the people you have sex with. It's more about your role as, and I'm talking here about elite males because they're the ones we know most about and Heliogabalus was an elite male it's less the gender of the people you have sex with and more your role whether you're active or passive within sex now Heliogabalus openly flaunts his enjoyment of the passive role in male male sex and this is a very shocking thing to traditionally minded Romans I mean he even actually seems to have married a man taking the role of the bride, which, and the man, of course, was a lower-class man, which makes it a charioteer, which makes it even worse. So he, he pretty much upsets almost everyone. In the book, I do explore their hints here or there that there might have been some elements of Roman society that actually welcomed his sexuality and seemed to have applauded it, but they're very much in the minority, it's one of the interesting things about Heliogabalus, as you said um, in the intro to this bit, if Heliogabalus is remembered at all in the modern world, it's almost always for his sexuality. And certain elements of the LBGQ plus community have elevated him into what is called a queer icon, which is, you can see why, but it is kind of strange, because to elevate him into any form of icon or hero you do have to totally concentrate on the stuff that fits your view of the world, and you have to totally ignore the fact that he was also massively incompetent, massively profligate with money, uh, he was irresponsible, he killed lots of people, he kills his own tutor with his own hand. I mean, he, he's a very nasty bit of work in almost every way. But I suppose to make anyone from another culture and from the past into a hero, you, you always have to do that marginalisation of the stuff that doesn't fit the modern worldview and very much focus on the stuff that does. 
And I suppose we take our modern understanding of things and can put them onto the past too. So one of the things I was interested about was it's sometimes claimed that Heliogabalus actively desired a sex change. So he asked questions apparently about being castrated and having surgery to create the illusion of female genitals. What's your understanding of those stories about him? Because some people might say today, oh, he's an early example of an individual who's transgender. Yes, and if he had been born today in the modern West, he he almost certainly would have been. Um, The story comes from Cassius Dio, who is a contemporary, a very interesting source, because he was actually very close to the uh, imperial court. Cassius Dio spends most of his time talking about Heliogabalus, rather busily distancing himself from the reign after it's over, because he was deeply implicated in it. He held various posts, uh, very high government posts under Heliogabalus. He records the story that Heliogabalus asked the imperial physicians about the possibility of a physical sex change. Whether it's true or not is much more debatable. It is quite possibly true, and because nothing happened, because the doctors reply, no, it's physically impossible in the state of medicine then. That makes sense. Um, it's interesting about Cassius Dio in, in particular, because um, he's a good record of information about Heliogabalus. However, he might be bringing into his writings his own, you know, his own allegiances. And I think he described some of his writings as his, almost historical fiction-like in the book because of how he elaborates and things. So you sort of have to weigh up what he's writing. No other emperor is accused of exploring the possibility of a sex change, which kind of suggests that perhaps this story might have been true because it wasn't used to discredit anyone else. Do you think that that... that but I think it's, it's a very good argument because bad emperors tend to be accused of doing the same things. And some so scholars now go, oh, it's a, what they call a topos, a literary cliche, so they can't have done it. Which kind of begs the question, couldn't bad emperors have done the same things? Because that's why, what they like to do. Um, once again, going back to that, modern scholars not getting their imagination in empathy with um, ancient autocrats. Ancient autocrats have a very distressing habit of not behaving like Oxford dons. It's just a thing they do. All that killing people and de- deviant sex... I think it is quite a possibility, as we know that Nero is also said to have married a man, taking the role of the bride, but he's never accused of attempting a physical, asking about a physical sex change. So the, the, the unusual nature, well, the unique nature of the story might encourage us to believe in it. I actually leave that open in the book, because even Cassius Dio, I think, describes it as a rumour, but there again, Cassius Dio is busily saying everything in my story about him is a rumour because I wasn't there and I didn't know anything about it and I'm really nothing to do with him. Sure, he's got his own agenda there. Um, I think Cassius Dio also claimed that Helio Gabalus left the palace wearing a wig to frequent brothels and that he even took the place of sex workers himself sometimes. Again, is this a case of there could be some truth to this kind of story? Because these kind of stories also weren't told about other emperors like Nero. He wasn't ever described as going out and taking the place of sex workers. Yeah, uh, absolutely. The... um Other bad emperors were accused of sneaking out of the palace in disguise and visiting brothels as a customer. Heliogabalus is the only one accused of taking the place of the prostitutes and becoming a sex worker. It is quite possible because an emperor can do... The emperor's will is law. He can do whatever he wants. 
And half the time, this young man is out of the control of his grandmother or indeed seemingly anyone else. And in the book, I do compare it to sort of various modern autocrats who do what look like insane things that if they were recorded of being done by our own emperor would be just dismissed as fiction. For example, you know, Stalin summoning the Politburo and putting on jazz records and making these lumbering mass murderers dance together. Try and find a real political motive for that. Something deep and rational. Well, I suppose he dem- was demonstrating his power over them. I, I'm very much in the book exploring the idea that we shouldn't dismiss all these stories just because we find them far-fetched. I also wanted to talk about Heliogabalus's marriages. He married a few times, including to a Vestal Virgin. Wouldn't marrying a Vestal Virgin have been considered sacrilege? Was that a horrifying thing at the time? It was indeed a horrifying thing. He marries a lot of times. He's only on the throne for four years. And he he marries at least four times, possibly as many as seven, Of course, this wastes vast sums of money because every imperial wedding um, consumes huge amounts of resources. And twice he marries the same Vestal Virgin. He marries her, divorces her, remarries her. Yes, the the Vestals tend the sacred half-fire of Rome. We're told that Heliogabalus... Well, we're told two different stories. He once, in one story by Herodian, I think, claims that one of the contemporary authors that he married the Vestal Virgin to try and pretend that he had, in our terms, heterosexual desires, and he was just smitten with love and lust. And the other story that comes down is that, a more religious motive again, he's the high priest of Elagabal, she's, as it were, the high priestess of Rome, they should marry, and then they will produce godlike children. But yes, it's unbelievably worrying for conventionally minded Romans and this this threatens the very existence of Rome at a cosmic level. And similarly he married the male slave, you might have mentioned this already, um, Heracles who I think he wanted to name his Caesar. What can you tell us about his marriage to this this man and how it was received? Heracles was a charioteer who has the good fortune of his chariot crashing in front of the imperial box. He falls out, his helmet falls off, tumbling blonde hair. Heliogabalus is smitten, takes him back to the palace. And then we're told later marries him um, with Heliogabalus as the role of bride. Now, transgressive marriages are not unknown amongst the upper classes of Rome. They... They tend to either bigamous marriages or, as I mentioned earlier, Nero marrying um, a man. It seems to be maybe the very transgressive nature of it is part of the sexual thrill for the people doing it. How is it received? Well, once you've married a charioteer, this is received very badly. And then when you say that you want to make him your Caesar, your heir, this is even worse. This is one of the times that Julian Miser, his grandmother, does step in and we're told persuades him that this is just such bad political spin that he can't do it. And and indeed he doesn't. He um, instead is persuaded to adopt his cousin, another grandson of Julian Miser. And then that goes very badly and he's no sooner adopted this boy who becomes the next ruler, Alexander Severus, than we're told he tries to have him sidelined or indeed killed. So we've talked about his sex life, we've talked about his marriages, and we've talked about his religion. Um, but Heliogabalus was known for his decadence. Can you perhaps give us some examples of how he lived his life? How, how did his love of excess compare to perhaps other emperors? 
he had a deep love of excess. His huge dinner parties... It's hard to tell the truth of these because most of the really, really good stories about his decadence actually come from a source that we call the Augustan history. And it's written 200 years after he died. The first half is seems a fairly sensible sort of biography, a bit like um, those of Suetonius. And then halfway through, the author, who we don't know his name of, of the, the life of Heliogabalus in the Augustan history, actually gives up on sort of biography at a realistic register and starts writing ancient historical fiction and that's where most of the best stories come from um including the wonderful one of um the dinner party where flowers are released from the ceiling and they smother the guests and they all start suffocating how true they are that that's much harder to tell does sound a bit game of thrones-esque <laughs> I think um, George R. R. Martin, somewhere or other in an interview, said that actually he was influenced by um, the life of Heliogabalus in some of his port- portrayals of the bad rulers, Joffrey and people in uh, Game of Thrones. Yeah. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so we're nearing the end of the podcast, and I was hoping that we could talk about Heliogabalus's downfall. He was emperor for just four years, so very short reign. What were the turning points, firstly, that led to his downfall? The turning points, I think, happen in the last year of his reign. It's after his grandmother had persuaded him to adopt his cousin Alexander Severus as his heir, And it's when Heliogabalus starts to try and get rid of his heir publicly by not allowing him to appear in the big imperial processions and things. And privately by, we're told, trying to get the staff of Alexander to murder him. And this is what decides his grandmother again, that Heliogabalus has to go, that he's turning everyone against him. She's worried that, of course, if Heliogabalus is killed, the whole dynasty, the whole family will be overthrown. And it's actually this grandmother who organises um, the, the coup that kills Heliogabalus. The Praetorian Guard are encouraged to demand the presence of the emperor and his cousin in their barracks in the north of Rome. They turn up there. Heliogabalus is furious because the Praetorian Guardsmen cheer when they see his cousin and greet him with a hostile silence. He spends the night fuming in the chapel, the, the temple in in the guards um, camp and in the morning he bursts out and starts ordering the arrest of what he sees as the ringleaders not everyone's turned against him initially they're arrested but then other guardsmen free the men who've been arrested and at some point Heliogabalus must have realized that he was now a prisoner still not everyone's deserted him he's hidden in a wooden chest and they try and smuggle him out to the camp to safety it doesn't work. The, the, his, the chest is opened. He's hauled out. And while his mother clings to him, uh, both the emperor and the mother, a woman called Soimias, are murdered. And it's, um, it takes a certain sort of woman to be Julia Miser, to watch your daughter and one of your grandsons hacked to death in front of you, their bodies stripped naked, decapitated, mutilated, and then dragged with iron hooks through the streets of Rome. But she's got what she wanted. She's replaced Heliogabalus with another grandson, Alexander, who turns out to be really what she wanted in the first place. A nice, quiet, biddable teenage boy, once again about 14 years old, who really just does what his grandmother and mother tell them. 
And how do you think we should remember Heliogabalus today? Um, as you write in your book, academia has generally ignored him a little bit in favour of perhaps other emperors. So what makes him worth our consideration today? I think it's the fact that he is the very worst emperor ever, makes him the ideal prism through which to view what a Roman emperor was meant to be and meant to do. Because you can really look at him, take him as a test case, and he does the exact opposite of what was wanted. I think also what he, as he was for the ancient writers, who um, Cassius Dyer, Herodian, and the Augustan history, he makes a very good warning against the sheer dangers of autocracy because he pushes what an autocrat can do to the very limits that make you know modern autocrats look almost tame by comparison. Thank you very much, Harry. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast today. And I really do recommend people at home to pick up your book, The Mad Emperor, which is out now. Thank you very much. It's been very nice talking to you. That was Harry Sidebottom in conversation with Rachel Dinning. Harry's book, The Mad Emperor, Heliogabalus and the Decadence of Rome is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 